Our sermon text today is the 25th Psalm. It's a Psalm of David. I often say this, uh, but today probably is especially true. Uh, If you have brought your Bible with you, I invite you to open it to the 25th Psalm, pretty much right in the middle of your Bible. If you don't have that handy, it is printed in your bulletin. Today, especially as I said, it might be very helpful to be following along throughout the sermon because we're not going to just be uh, starting at the beginning, working our way through the sermon to the end, but we're going to jump around the psalm, and so it might be handy to have the text in front of you as we do that. Uh, As Western thinkers, we tend to think in a linear fashion, right? Point A, then point B, then point C, and that leads us to the end. An Eastern way of thinking, though, is much more circular, kind of talks around the point and kind of goes around in different places and hits different things, and and, uh, this psalm is one such example. And so, Uh, I will read to you now the 25th Psalm. If you're able, out of respect for God's word, please stand and hear this. The 25th Psalm, this is the inspired word of God. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait on you shall be put to shame. They shall Be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress, consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us as a guide, not just to how we should live, but as a guide into the knowledge of you. Help us to see you today, and as we see you more clearly, 
May we worship you more truly and deeply and personally. And may we rejoice in your goodness, glory, and grace this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we as a Presbyterian church have a specifically Presbyterian type of worship. And we just might be more Presbyterian than most Presbyterians here at Calvary. Um, you know, uh, Presbyterian worship, for better or worse, for good or for bad, whichever way you want to look at it, is very much marked by certain things. On, on one hand, it is, it is marked by being decent and in order. Right? It's very, very ordered, very structured. There's uh, a liturgy that we follow that's very intentional and purposeful. And, and we, we sit in an ordered fashion generally. And it's, it's just very much decent and in order. On the other hand, uh, we, we have as Presbyterians been somewhat rightly criticized at times as being the, the frozen chosen. right? Being those who, who are, are maybe not as animated as the subject matter of our worship that is the holy god who has created all and who has redeemed us as as he would seem to prompt and, and so we we oftentimes just kind of think about our worship here and we think of what you're doing right now sitting in a pew uh listening and, and maybe even if we sing just kind of uh somewhat dispassionately singing or or such a we we need to realize that that in the ancient church, dating back into Old Testament times even, that that would not have been the way that worship was done. That worship would have been marked by the idea, if we had one idea, I think it would be lifting up. Lifting up your body. People would stand to worship as opposed to sitting. They would lift up their eyes. They would, they would lift their eyes up as if to the Lord. They would, they would pray as they prayed. They would they would lift up their hands at times, lifting them up to the Lord. They would lift up their voices, right? Not just kind of murmuring through the hymns, but, but lifting them up to the Lord. This idea of lifting up, and we see it right here in this psalm, right? Right off the bat, verse 1, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul, right? And when you hear soul, I don't want you to think just spirit. I want you to think soul as as kind of the idea being the whole of my being, my, my entire person, you know, all of me. Lord, I lift up all of me to you. In fact, I, I'm taking myself and as, as if you might take a, a newborn baby, right, and, and place it in its mother's arms. Right? That, is, that is what I'm doing with myself, Lord. I'm, I'm taking all of me and I'm placing me in your arms for your care for your love, for your protection, for you to hold me. Now, why would David do that as he's writing this psalm? Why would he start there? Why would he even be willing to say, I'm, I'm giving up myself to you, Lord? Uh, we are people who like autonomy. We like to be in charge. We like to be in control. We like to decide what we are going to do. Why would we possibly want to give that control over to God? Well, we don't know what the precise situation that prompted it for David. Uh, there's no, no notation or anything that tells us specifically what it was in David's life, historically, that 
was occurring at this point, but we do know from the context clues of this passage some of the things that he was facing, some of the, the, the things he was dealing with. And perhaps you can relate. He was dealing with fear. He was dealing with uncertainty of direction in life. He was, he was dealing with guilt. He was dealing with loneliness. These are, are pretty common things, aren't they? They're, they're things that we've all faced at some time, maybe not all of them at the same time, but, but I think each of us have faced each of these things at some point in our life and maybe are facing all of them even right now. And so we turn to this psalm as it helps us to see what things we truly need, not just what felt needs we have, but what, what real needs we have and, and how we can look to God to provide for them, right? We look to God to provide those things that we truly need. And as you'll notice in your, your bulletin, if you've got the sermon notes page out, it says we should ask God for the things we truly need, which he promises to provide. There's four points there. I'll run through those four points with you. The first of them is guardianship. Okay, guardianship, by that I mean his, his protection, right? He guards us. You'll see why I went with guardianship in just a moment. Uh, but, but guardianship, verse 2, Oh my God, he says. And note he doesn't just say, Oh God, it's oh my God. There's a personal relationship with God, right? He is, he is in relationship with this covenantal God who has, who has made a covenant with him and with his people before him. And we see in verse 1 who that God is, right? When we see, oh Lord, in all capital letters, right? That, that means it's referring to the name Yahweh, the covenantal God of the people of Israel, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of all things, this covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He says, oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. He's calling on God to protect him and trusting that he will indeed protect him. Have you ever seen the movie? It's a little bit older movie now, the movie Beethoven. It's a movie about a family. Uh, it stars Charles Grodin and Bonnie Hunt. And they, they've got a big dog. It's a big St. Bernard, right? And, and it's, it's their family pet, and they all love him. And, and he's just a great, wonderful family dog. And there's this little boy in the family. His name's Ted. And one day, Ted is on his way coming home from school. And, and some of the bullies on the bus start to pick on him, right? And they... They grab his glasses off of his face and they mess with his hair and they, they threaten to beat him up and they spill his backpack. And, and he's worried, he's fearful because, because he's not very big, he's not very strong and, and these bullies are older than him and bigger than him and, and, and he knows that they'll beat him up if, if he tries to fight him but, but the bus stops and he, he jumps off the bus and he starts to fly toward home as fast as he can but... The other kids are bigger than him and stronger than him and faster than him. They catch him very quickly. And he has nothing that he can do at that point. He is, he's totally lost. He knows that he's about to take his beating. So, so he fearfully puts up his dukes, right? 
And unbeknownst to him, as he's standing there, Beethoven, who has been waiting for him to come home, has walked up, and this massive dog is standing menacingly behind him. And the bullies that once seemed so big and tough all of a sudden are fearful, right? They're frightened because they know that while they could have beat up Ted, they stand no chance against this mighty, ferocious beast that is standing behind him, right? And so at once they give him his glasses back and they apologize and they run off in fear. And Ted, not even knowing that Beethoven's behind him, says to them in that moment, and don't come back, all right? The next scene, it switches immediately as Beethoven walks away. You're in the bathroom, and Ted is standing there in front of the mirror without his shirt on, making muscles, admiring how strong and mighty he is, right? What was it that had actually caused the bullies to leave, though? It wasn't Ted's mighty physique. No, it was that he had a powerful friend behind him. Right? He had a friend with him who could guard him and protect him, who could take care of him, a friend who was mightier than any that would come against him. And because of that friend, he need not fear, right? Because that friend would protect him. And that's what our situation is. God is our friend who is with us always, a powerful friend. And, and therefore, we read in verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. We should not be afraid of anyone or anything because we have a powerful friend behind us, right? As powerful as Beethoven might have been, God is so much more powerful than that, right? He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. Jesus says as much in Matthew 10. He says, fear not those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the body, the soul and the body in hell. Right? And, and if we looked at the Bible, we'd see that the, the most common uh, command that we find in the Bible is quite simply, do not fear. Right? Some 100 times or so, God tells his people, do not fear. And what is the reason that God gives that we should not fear? Because I am with you. Right? Because God is with us, we need not fear. He is with us. We know this from Psalm 23, right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He is with us and he is in charge. Calvin says, acknowledge that you have received immortal souls which are subject to the disposal of God alone and do not come into the power of men. The consequence will be that no terrors or alarms which men may employ will shake your faith. For how comes it that the dread of men prevails in the struggle, but because the body is preferred to the soul, the immortality is less valued than a perishing life right? Realizing this, David says in verse 15, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. You see what he's saying? Whatever we face, whatever ensnares us, the Lord is there to 
pluck us out, to save us, to, to deliver us. Know that he is able and he is willing, and, and it may not look like we want it to or we think it should, but the Lord is at work in our lives always. It's reiterated 19 and 20 of today's text. Verse 19, consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. David harbors no illusions. He doesn't pretend that we will not face obstacles, we will not face opposition, that things will be easy and we won't have any pains. No, he does not say that at all. He realizes we live in a broken, fallen world and, and people and things will come against us and they will make life hard, they will make life painful at times. And yet, instead of fearing them, we should turn to God. Like David says in verse 20, O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. But it's not just his guardianship that we need, right? And not just his guardianship for which we should pray. We should pray, and this is your second point in the outline, we should pray for his guidance. His first was his guardianship, second is his guidance. Verse 4, make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. We talked a minute ago about how, how the fear of the Lord should mark our lives and how it, it replaces the fear of man. It pushes out the fear of man because he guards us, but he also guides us when we fear the Lord. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who, those who practice it have a good understanding. Similarly, in Proverbs 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In today's text, verse 12, who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. Right? The Lord will give us guidance. We long for that. We want it. We want to know what lies ahead. We want to know which way we should go, which way we should turn. We, we, we want to have an idea of, of a route mapped out ahead of us. That's why things like horoscopes are so popular, right? Because we, we just want to have some, some form of guidance. And while that is wrong and we ought not to do that, the Lord actually does give us guidance. He does give us direction. And you might say, wait a second, Pete, what, what do you mean? Because God doesn't tell me directly what to do all the time. I don't hear his voice. I, I have a big decision. I need to choose either door A or door B. And, and I don't hear the Lord speaking to me. What? What are you talking about how the Lord gives us guidance? Well, we need to remember that when it comes to God's guidance, it is primarily given to us through his instruction in his word. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. He says, our greatest error is to divorce the subject of guidance from the rational processes of our minds. Right? You see, we, we normally, or at least often, kind of split those apart. Right? We think about God leading us, not as something that we rationally think through through what he has taught us, but rather in the realm of feelings. Right? It's even in the language we see, right? We say, I feel led of the Lord to do this. Right? That's just the way we, we talk about it. 
But the reality is we ought not to separate how we are led by the Lord as how we are taught. Because the problem is when we elevate our feelings to a level of authority in our lives that is equal to that of Scripture, then we end up heading off in all kinds of wrong directions. Right? Uh, I've known of situations where people who are God-fearing Christian people have said things like, well, you know, I'm just not happy in my marriage. I feel like God would want me to be happy. So I think I need to get a divorce. Or, or maybe, you know, I want some item, something that's very expensive maybe, and you say, you know, I feel like God would want me to have that. Even though I can't afford it. Even though I can't really pay for it. I, I just feel like he would want me to have that. You know, and so maybe you would do something unethical to get it or unwise to get it. See, when we start making decisions based on what we feel God would want, what we actually oftentimes are doing is creating an idol in our mind, right, that, that looks a lot like us, right, and, and we just kind of assign to that idol whatever it is that we want, then we feel like that's what God is leading us too. But if we look in the scriptures, there's an unchanging standard that he gives us and by which he directs us. Right? If we trust our heart only, we can get into trouble quickly. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Right? The world tells us all the time that the, the problem is out there and all we need to do is look within for the solution, but the Bible tells us that the problem is within, right? And if we are to be saved, if we are to be delivered, it needs to be by someone out there, right? The problem needs to come from outside. It needs to come from God. So it's vitally important that we know and study God's word. Verse 9 tells us he leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. It's saying this is not some bitter pill that we have to swallow, right? It's not, well, I have to follow the ways that the Lord tells me in his word, and I guess I'll just go on being miserable because of that. No. The Lord gives us his ways that we might walk in joy that we might walk in life everlasting he has good plans for us therefore verse 21 says may integrity and uprightness preserve me for i wait for you right the lord directs us in that way of of integrity and uprightness so may it preserve me but here is the rub with that we don't always walk and integrity and uprightness, do we? We often, even though we know we should go this way, kind of wander off over here. And so we've got a problem there because what we rightly deserve at that point is no less than death. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. It's what God promised Adam in the garden. If you eat of the forbidden fruit and the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So we stand in need 
of grace. That's your third point. Right? We pray for grace. We pray for grace. And grace isn't just being nice. It's actually specifically not receiving what we ought to receive, but rather receiving what we need to receive. Remember verse 9? It is the humble that God guides, right? It's the humble. It doesn't say it's the holy that God guides. It doesn't say it's those who have everything put together that God guides. It's not those who have checked off enough marks on the test. No, it's the humble that he guides. It says those who know that they don't have all the answers, those who who know that they don't have it all right, those who admit that they are sinners and repent of their sins and look to God for his mercy. We realize we can't earn our own way and we plead for him to come to us. So in verse 6, David says, remember your mercy, O Lord. He's a God of righteousness. He's a God of perfect holiness but he's also a God of glorious grace and of patience and forgiveness. So verse 6 says, Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been of old. Verse 7, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Not just for your sake, my sake, but for your sake. And for your name's sake, he says in verse 11, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Let us never forget that. Our guilt is great. We aren't just a little guilty. We're not just a little sinful. And I'm reminded of the words of John Newton, who penned Amazing Grace. Right On his deathbed, he said, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. That I am a great sinner and Jesus is a great Savior. You see, no matter how badly we sin, his grace is always greater than our sin. And so, in verses 17 and 18, he says, The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. He he doesn't say, I'm not that bad, God. I'm good enough to make it. You know, I, I may have messed up a little bit, but, you know, I'm better than that other guy. No, he says, my affliction and trouble are great. My, my troubles of my heart are enlarged. It is, is a distress but you can forgive me. You can deliver me. You can have grace on me. Turn to me, he says in verse 16, right before that, though, and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. That's the last thing we need to look to. We, we need his goodness in our life. You'll see how I mean that. His goodness is the fourth point. For the one who fears the Lord, verse 13 tells us, his soul shall abide in well-being. Shall abide in well-being. The King James Version says it shall dwell at ease. doesn't mean that life will be easy, because it's not. It means that we can rest in him no matter how hard life gets. Like Job said in Job 13, 15, Though he slay me, 
I will hope in him. See, because the undergirding bedrock of our lives, the, the foundation that we have is the knowledge of our relationship with God, not as some capricious potentate or some far-off, unfeeling sovereign, but rather as our good and loving Father who pours out his goodness upon us, who, who envelops us with his goodness, who showers us with it. Just as we sometimes gave our children things or made them do things that they might not have liked, right? They, they have to eat their vegetables, right? They have to take the medicine even though it tastes bad, right? And a little child especially, maybe a little baby, try not to, they'll fight against us. Can't understand why we would possibly be so cruel to them. So is our lack of understanding when hardships come our way under the sovereign hand of God. We do not understand the goodness that he is bringing about. And perhaps we never will. But we can trust indeed that he is working for our good. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so we see him say in verse 13, his soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. It's actually a Hebrew idiom there that means your, your influence your, will outlast you to your children's children. Right? The, the, the good that God is working out in our lives that may sometimes be hard isn't just for us. It's for the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that. I saw, I wish I had written this down. I hadn't planned on saying this, but I saw this just last night. Somebody posted a thing on Facebook or Twitter or somewhere I saw it. And, and it was just this little chart that talked about how, okay, so, right, if you go back one generation, you had two parents, and then another generation, there's four people, and another's eight, and 16, 32, 64, 128, you get the point before you test my math skills too much here, right? But if you go back, it was something like, you know, I can't remember, 12 generations or something like that. You know, the, the number of people that were necessary at that point, it was just, just some huge number. I can't even remember what it was, right? And, and the point they made was, just think of all these people that were a part of making you, right? Of, of you being you. And think of all the hardships that they endured, all the difficulties that they faced, all the things that these thousands of people went through just for you to be you, right? And they had no idea. They had no idea 300 years ago when they were doing things, right, that, that we would be here today, right? And so we are. God is working in your lives in ways you can't even imagine. And they are good and wonderful ways. Good is God, right? It's right there in verse 8. I haven't mentioned verse 8 yet. I very intentionally saved it for the end. It says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Now, I said at the beginning, kind of talk around a point, kind of before you kind of land on it in the middle, in the eastern way of think, thought. And, and I think verse 8 kind of is the summary of this whole passage, really. And that's why I'm finishing here. 
Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in their way. I think all four of the points that we've looked at today are, are present right in there. Obviously, we have his goodness, right? Good and upright is the Lord. That's easy. And obviously, we have his guidance. Therefore, he instructs sinners in, in his way. Those two are simple, right? But, but think about this, too. We have his guardianship. Because if you, you go in the way that he directs, you will be safe. You will be saved. There's no safer place to be than square in the middle of God's revealed will. Right? That's, that's where we ought to be. And then finally, we see his grace because he instructs sinners in the way. He instructs sinners in the way. I was reminded of John 14 when I read that. And Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? What does Jesus say in response to him? He says, Thomas, I am the way. I am the way, he says. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are the words of Jesus there. He he pours out his grace through these words because we stand guilty and God requires justice. God requires mercy. Or we require mercy. God requires justice. We require mercy. And God brings those two together at the cross. Right? At the cross where where the perfect son of God bore the perfect wrath of God for our infinite sin. Right? And it was there that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Right? His grace is there for us at the cross. And so it's for that reason that David cries out in verse 22, and we should cry out with him, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Redeem us, Lord. Purchase us. Pluck us out. Save us. So turn to him today. Turn to him and cry out to him. Ask him for his guardianship. Ask him for his guidance. Ask him for his grace. And ask him for his goodness. And know that all your prayers will be answered. Would you pray with me? Our Lord and our God, we thank you that we can pray confidently. We thank you that we can, we can look to you and that you do not hide yourself from us, that you reveal yourself to us in your word, that you have shown yourself to us in the person of Christ Jesus, that you give your spirit to us even now as through it we trust in you. We pray that you would help us to honor you and worship you this day and that we would See that our souls would be led by you, even as a sheep is led by a shepherd, trusting in him. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, who is the great shepherd.